0: We have an anchor that keeps the soul. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. Was the church planned by God? There are a lot of people in the world today that have the idea that because Jesus Christ was rejected by the Jews, He failed in his efforts to establish the kingdom. And so what he did was parenthetically set up what has been called the church age. Well, first and foremost, I would remind all of us that God the Father was not caught off guard when the Jews rejected Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have Isaiah talking about the Messiah, the suffering servant. And he said, with regard to the Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he said, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth, God, through the prophet Isaiah, said that Jesus would be despised and rejected by people. And you remember John said in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. Jesus did come to establish a kingdom, the church, and he was able to accomplish that. But with regard to the church or the kingdom being planned by God, well, what does the Bible say? Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. In these verses, Paul said, And to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now listen to him in verse 11, he writes, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul here says that the church exists according to God's eternal purpose. So when we talk about the church or the kingdom of God, it was not, as some would say, an afterthought. When people ask the question, did God plan the church? Yes, He did. Do we have a Bible verse that would suggest that? Well, of course we do, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Now, in close connection to this question, are there prophecies about the church? Because really the two go hand in hand. When we talk about the church being an institution that was planned by God. The prophets of old foretold of this institution, which suggests divine planning, doesn't it? Let me just call attention to a couple of passages. There are a number in the Old Testament that we could appeal to. First, look with me, if you you would, at Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah said, It shall come to pass in the latter days, in the last days. That is, in the last dispensation of time. We know it as the Christian age. He said, it shall come to pass in the last days, the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And he said, it shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Isaiah here sees the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. Now you and I both know that the church, God's eternal plan was that the church would consist of both Jews and Gentiles. That's what Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3. That was his eternal purpose. And so he said in verse 3, Many people shall say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. A couple of of important points here. First, Isaiah said that God would teach us His ways. When we talk about the Christian religion, the new covenant, it is a covenant based upon teaching and preaching, isn't it? Think for a minute about what Jesus said before ascending to heaven. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God's design was that we take the gospel and that we reach out and teach other people. But then He said the word of the Lord would go forth from Zion... In other words, God's Word would begin being preached from the city of Jerusalem. Do you remember in Luke chapter 24, before ascending to heaven, Jesus said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached to all nations in His name, beginning where? In Jerusalem. So Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth and established the kingdom of God, foretold of this Exalted institution. And then look with me, if you would, at Daniel chapter 2. Look at Daniel chapter 2. We don't really have time to spend a lot of time in great detail in these passages, but just a couple of important points. In Daniel chapter 2, we have Daniel interpreting a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And what Daniel says, in essence, is that Nebuchadnezzar had seen a great image. The image confounded him, and he wanted an interpretation of it. And so Daniel said that this great image represented four kingdoms, four empires, beginning with Babylon. And he said that the Babylonian kingdom would give way to the Medes and the Persians. And each of these kingdoms brought inherent qualities to the Gospel age. For example, the Medes and the Persians brought law and order. And then the Medes and the Persians would give way to the Grecian Empire. The Grecian Empire contributed a universal language, Koine Greek. And then the Grecian Empire would give way to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, noted for her roads and communication. Some have said all roads lead to Rome. And so down in verse 44, here's what Daniel said with regard to this kingdom that would be established in the days of these kings. He said in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And then he said it shall stand forever. Prophetically, Daniel is talking about the church, the kingdom of God. And Daniel is saying that each of these empires would rise and fall in successive order. The kingdom that would never be destroyed would not be an earthly temporal kingdom, but rather it would be A spiritual kingdom. And you remember Jesus said in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that we're talking about is the same kingdom that John the Baptist began preaching about in Matthew chapter 3. When the angel of God visited Mary before she gave birth to the Christ. Do you remember the angel said to Mary, of his kingdom there shall be no end in Luke chapter 1 verse 33. That kingdom was the same kingdom that Daniel foretold of, the same institution that Isaiah wrote about, the same institution that John the Baptist preached about in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. And Matthew said, according to his account, that John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, and we're talking about prophetically <laughs> pointing to the coming of the church of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist prophesied of its coming, Jesus said, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." In Mark chapter nine, verse one, Jesus said, "There are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power." When did that occur? Pentecost Day, as recorded by Luke in Acts chapter two. So, if you go back and look at the Old Testament and take those passages of Scripture and tie them into Ephesians chapter three, verses nine through eleven, you have God pointing to this divine institution known as the church or the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a third question that we want to ask tonight because it's a question that many people want an answer to. Who built the church? That's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, you think about the divine builder of the church, if the church was planned by God, and it was, prophesied by Almighty God, and it was, if John the Baptist said that God would establish it, If Jesus said that it was at hand, that it would be established, then obviously someone had to establish this divine institution. So in Matthew chapter 16, you remember Jesus, as he came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And there were any number of opinions regarding his identity. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Jesus wanted to know, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then replied by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. How in the world would Peter and the apostles, the other apostles, have been able to identify the Christ as the anointed one, the Messiah? How could they have identified Jesus as the Son of the living God? Because they heard His message and they saw His miracles. And both laid claim to the fact that he was who he said he was, that is, the Son of God. So they identified him as the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, And I also say unto you, speaking to Peter, he said, Upon this rock, listen to him, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus is promising here to build his church, isn't he? If you look at the text in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church that is singular and possessive in nature. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, the church that I am building, first and foremost, it belongs to me. And secondly, there is only one. Now in this day and time, when people ask us, who built the church? It's important that we have the ability to put our finger on a scripture and say, okay, here's what the Bible says. Now, there are a lot of religious organizations in our world today that can trace their origin back to a human being that established them. And we could go back and look at all the, the, number, the numerous founders of varying religious organizations. But what we want to ask is, who built the church that we read about in the Bible? Well, Jesus did. Jesus not only built the church, but he is the founder of the church. The psalmist said in Psalm 127, 1, Except the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Not only is Jesus the founder of the church, he is the foundation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So think about it. Jesus is the builder of the church. He is the founder of the church, and he is the foundation of the church. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And what he's saying is the church rests solidly upon one foundation. That one foundation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's not as likely today as it was in days gone by, but there's still some that will say when you talk to them about the church, They'll say, I know about you guys. You're that group that was started by Alexander Campbell, aren't you? I mean, There are some people that still make that claim. Matter of fact, you can look back and some historians will even say they'll try to link Alexander Campbell to the establishment of the church of Christ. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 16, Paul in the first century said, the churches of Christ salute you. Alexander Campbell was not born until almost 1800, about 1789, somewhere in there. 1700 years after the church was established by Jesus on Pentecost Day, Alexander Campbell was born. So how in the world, pray tell, could he have ever established the Church of Christ? The fact of the matter is, he didn't, he couldn't. The only person that established the church, the only person who has the right to establish the church is Jesus. That's it. So when we talk about Jesus... And we talk about being a member of the church of Christ. Here's what we need to understand. We're not talking about the church of Christ as if it were another denomination. What we're saying is the church that belongs to Christ. In other words, it's his church. It's not our church. It's not my church. It's not Campbell's church or anybody else's. It's the Lord's church, isn't it? So when we discuss the church of Christ, what we're saying is Jesus is the one who bought it He built it, therefore it belongs to him. And if he bought it and built it, he has the right to decide how it's to operate, doesn't he? He has the right to regulate how the church is organized, how it is to worship, how it is to work, on and on. So, who built the church? Only one person did. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now there's a fourth question that we want to ask, and I think this is very important in light of the questions that have been asked thus far. The fourth question is, what was the price of the church? Now, sometimes when we talk about institutions that have been bought and paid for, we'll talk about how they are accompanied or their establishment was accompanied by blood, sweat, and tears. When we talk about the church of Christ, it was established by Jesus and it was bought and paid for by His divine, by His divine blood, wasn't it? In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, listen to him, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus bought the church with his blood, didn't he? Now we talk about the importance of the church and the fact that the church was bought and paid for with his divine blood. Since he bought it and he built it, it belongs to him and him alone. I said a moment ago that the church that we're talking about belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we talk to people about the church and we talk about the church of Christ, what they have in mind is that we're saying the church of Christ is a better denomination than maybe what their denomination is. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is the church of Christ is not a denomination. As a matter of fact, I think one of the things that we have failed to see in the church in the last probably 35, 40, 50 years is the distinctiveness of the church of Christ. The church of Christ is different. Why is it different? It's different because of who bought it, who built it. It is different because it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said, You are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Listen to what Peter said. He said that we, that is Christians, we are a people for God's own possession. Why? Because he bought us, didn't he? The Bible says we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, we've been set apart. Set apart from the world under God. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 12, Paul said that God has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. It is a spiritual kingdom. It was bought by Jesus. It was built by Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. And that means every one of us as New Testament Christians belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God. He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, listen to him, which are God's. Do you remember back in Exodus chapter 13 when God set apart the firstborn following the institution of the Passover feast, and God said to the children of Israel, I want you to sanctify unto me the firstborn, whether it be man or animal. He said, whatever opens the womb, it is mine. God laid claim to the firstborn. Today, those who are members of the body of Christ, that is those of us who have obeyed the gospel, we are the church of the firstborn, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. And the Hebrew writer said, we have been registered in heaven. And what God is saying is, I own you lock, stock, and barrel. Are we different from those in the world? Yes, we are. Is the church of Christ distinctive in nature? Yes, it is. Now, let me get to another question very quickly. What must a person do to become a member of the church of Christ? Now, when we ask this question and when people ask us the question, what do we, what do we need to do to become a member of the Church of Christ. If they're asking us a biblical question, don't you think it would behoove us to give a biblical answer? Sure. Let me just read for you. I had someone drop this off at my house not long ago, and it is an invitation to visit a church in South Haven. And on the back of this card, the question is asked, are you going to heaven when you die? And that's a good question. They have four statements regarding Or rather, in response to this question. They say, realize your condition. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, that's right. Recognize the penalty for sin. Number two, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, that's right. Remember Jesus died to pay for sin. Romans 5.8, that's right. Number four, receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Romans 10.13. And now listen to this. If you believe what the Bible says and would like to ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior... Sincerely pray this prayer to God. Dear Lord, I realize I'm a sinner and that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. Please forgive my sin. Come into my heart and save me. I trust you alone to take me to heaven. Thank you for saving me. Now look, in no way am I trying to seem condescending, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible says. Now you remember we said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God? Didn't Paul ask the question, what does the Scripture say? They gave book, chapter, and verse for things that all of us agree with re- with regard to our condition. That is, we're in sin, the penalty for sin, the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But you can't be saved unless you do it God's way. Now let me ask this question. and We're talking about something that is extremely important. This is a life or death, heaven or hell issue, isn't it? And so here's my question. What gives me or anyone else the right to tell someone to do something other than what the Bible says to do to become a child of God? Let's look at Acts chapter 2 very quickly. I want you to see Pentecost Day, the birth of the New Testament church, right? It's what we're talking about. All right, Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter we have a divine record of the message that he proclaimed on that day. And Peter points out that those people were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. But he points out that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, though he, were put to, though he was put to death on Calvary, was raised from the dead by Almighty God. He is now seated at the right hand of Almighty God. So in verse 36, Luke said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, quoting Peter, That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's what Peter said, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. Is that what he said? So why in the world would somebody say other than what Peter said? Why? Do I have the right to tell someone, this is what you need to do to become a Christian? When Peter said, here's what you need to do, what was that? Look at verse 38. This is not about what he said. It is what he said. Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter said you need to repent and be baptized. Did they believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? You know they did. Peter said let all the house of Israel know assuredly this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. They believed in the Son of God. That wasn't the issue. The problem was they recognized they were in sin and they needed a Savior. So they cried out, what do we need to do? Now you think about what people are hearing today in the world. How many churches in this area, DeSoto County, Shelby County, state of Mississippi, state of Tennessee, we could go around the globe. How many people are going to be told today exactly or something like it, what was said on this card? I suspect probably 95 to 98%. So if we tell somebody something other than what the Bible says to do to become a Christian, and they do it, are they a Christian? How can you be a Christian if you haven't obeyed the gospel? Look, I'm not trying to be ugly, condescending, arrogant, what I'm trying to do is say, look, if we want to go to heaven, if we want our friends and neighbors to go to heaven, then what we have to do is point them in the direction of truth. Only truth will save. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John eight thirty two. If we don't know the truth, and by the way, the calling card in churches of Christ is the truth of God. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Sometimes people say, well, what, what does the church of Christ teach? What we ought to ask is, what does the Bible teach? The church is the voice for truth, but the church looks to God's word. So, what must a person do to become a member of the church of Christ? Exactly what Peter said. And you can go through the book of Acts and look at every single account. Every single person in the book of Acts did the same thing to become the same people. And what was that? They heard the gospel because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. They believed Jesus Christ to be the son of God. The Bible says the eunuch believed with all of his heart, Acts chapter 8, in verse 37. They confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and they were baptized to wash away their sins, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. So if that's what the Bible says we have to do to become a member of the church, then why would we want to do anything else? Why would we want to tell anybody to do something else? Anything else is not biblical. It's not scriptural. Another question final question. Do you have to be a member of the church to go to heaven? That ought to be obvious. I want you to look with me at Ephesians 5 verse 23. In Ephesians 5 verse 23, listen to what the apostle Paul says. While you're turning to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23, you remember Paul said in Ephesians 4 verse 4, there is one body. Now sometimes people ask the question, what is the body? In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet made Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church and the body are one and the same. Jesus is the head of the church, Colossians 1.18, Ephesians 1.22 and 23. There is one head and one body, right? Is that what the Bible teaches? Yes. So there's one head, there's one body, Ephesians 4.4. So when we're baptized into Christ, now sometimes people will say, well, do I need to join the church? Do do I need to be voted into the church? Well, the Bible says when we're baptized into Jesus Christ, God adds us to the church. Acts 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. Who are in the church? The saved. The saved are the church. The church is the ecclesia, the community of the saved, the called out. So when we're baptized into Christ, God puts us in the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul said, by one spirit, were y'all baptized into one body. So, when we're baptized into Christ, we are in the church of Christ, are we not? Now, somebody says, well, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, but I I don't want anything to do with the church. Well, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have a relationship with the church. If you've obeyed the gospel, God has put you in the church. Now, why do you need to be in the church? And do you have to be a member of the church to go to heaven? Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 5. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. Listen, and he is the Savior of the body. Jesus is the Savior of the body. Can a person be saved outside the body of Christ? Of course not. Look, we're either in Christ or out of Christ. Salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. The only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Romans 6, 3 and 4. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we contact the blood of Christ. Jesus shed His blood in death. So when we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood which washes away our sins, Revelation 1, verse 5, and we are added to the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, reconciliation to God takes place where? In the one body. Think about it, the redeemed are in the body, the reconciled are in the body. Can you be saved without being redeemed? No. Can you be saved without being reconciled? Absolutely not. Look, I know this is a lot of information, and I know we've moved at a fast clip tonight, but I hope what has been said has been helpful. And we talk about the church and the growth of the church. We are all members of the church, aren't we? And as members of the body of Christ, our goal is to go to heaven, isn't it? And we want to go to heaven, and we want to take as many people with us as as we can. Well, how are we going to do that? We've got to teach people, don't we? And so these are basic, fundamental questions. It might be the case that you couldn't give a biblical answer to these questions on your own. If you didn't know the answer to these questions, you now have the answers. If you think you're going to know what the Bible teaches coming Sunday morning to Bible class, and Sunday morning to worship, and Sunday night to worship and Wednesday night to worship, or rather Bible study, you are sadly mistaken. There is absolutely no way you will know the Bible cover to cover with only three or four hours of study a week. It just does not work that way. You've got to be in this book every single day. Now, you don't have to spend all day studying, but you need to study. And you need to study every day. You need to be persistent and prayerful in your study. And you need to study every single day. Pick a time, morning, noon, or night, doesn't matter. Just pick a time and study. You know what the problem in the church of Christ is today? We haven't studied our Bible. I'm telling you the truth. In the church of Christ, by and large, we don't know what the Bible teaches. We really don't. There was a day when we were known as Bible-quoting, Bible-toting people. We were known as people of the book. We could quote book, chapter, and verse. That day has long since passed. We've got elders in the Lord's church today that couldn't answer these questions. You think I'm kidding, don't you? I'm telling you the truth. They couldn't answer these questions if their life depended on it. Same thing's true for deacons. And let me tell you what, we've got some preachers that probably couldn't answer these questions. And if that be the case, they need to get out of the pulpit. Either mount up or get out. I mean, either preach the Word or get out. I hope that what we've said tonight has been helpful. Has it been helpful? You know, sometimes folks look like deer in a headlight. My, my goal is for us to learn together. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. We can't sow what we don't know. The seed of the kingdom is the Word of God. If we don't know the Word, we can't sow that seed. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Anchor drift or firm remain. We have an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move.